nowhere documented in criminal history has there been anybody doing what Richard was doing. He was a, not only with little girls, but with little boys. He was using weapons. Serial killers normally kill in the same fashion. They stick to the same area. He used knives, guns, different caliber gun, blunt force trauma, manual strangulation, ligature strangulation, different times of day. They ranged in age. He used a machete, a shod foot, you know, you name it, type of how he killed, and he did it. It was all different, different type of everything. Richard could hear out of the speaker on the motorcycle, attention all cars, attempt kidnapping just occurred, suspect described as driving A, and it was Richard. Richard could hear it. Richard drew the pentagram with his fingers. He says a pentagram used to give him power. So he drew the pentagram on it, and then he took off running and got away. Hey, this is Matt Cox, and I'm going to be doing an interview with Gil Carrillo. He is one of the two homicide detectives on the Night Stalker case in Los Angeles. He was a homicide detective, and we're going to go ahead and uh, interview him. I really appreciate you guys watching, so check out the interview. You know, I saw the... I'm sure there have been many, many documentaries on on Ramirez. I, I've seen a lot of them, but I the ones that were done a few decades ago, but... The one um I had just finished watching the the one on Netflix mm-hmm. that they just redid. And it's funny because I had watched that maybe a month or so ago with my wife. And then I found that then I my booking agent said that uh you were you could be interviewed. So which I thought was great because I was like, Oh my gosh, I just watched him. You know, I just watched that case. So uh, and, you know, so it's funny because I know a lot of, the, I, I guess I know probably a lot of these answers, but I was wondering, so where were you, where were you born? Okay. Right. Well, why don't we start, let, let me, let me do a little beginning that I normally do when I go on, I do public speaking. Okay. Um, I, I grew up, uh, I was born in, in the city of Maywood, which is part of Los Angeles County, grew up in the city of Pico Rivera and life was uh, just coming along. I was one of seven children, six sisters, no brothers. And I was headed for no good. At age 17, a cop took me home and told my parents, sign for me to get off the streets or I'll end up dead or in prison. And so at age 17, my parents signed for me, and uh, it's the best thing that ever happened. That cop saved my life. I turned 18 November 29th, and on February 1st, I was in a place called Vietnam. Uh, one year of combat, two years of uh, three years of military service, I came back with a new appreciation on life, and that was uh, I had goals in life. I had matured. I wanted to go to college. I was naive enough to think that only rich white people went to college at that time, and fortunately, the community college was mandated to put me in because I was a Vietnam veteran. I got in. I wanted to become a cop because I wanted to give back and save somebody's life like that cop that saved mine. I wanted to get back to the community. Uh, number three isn't so nice. I wanted to start dating my ex-girlfriend that had written me a Dear John and get her eaten out of the palm of my hand so that I could witness breaking it off in her and watch her suffer like I had suffered when I was in Vietnam. Well, I got out in June of 70 and December 26th, the day after Christmas, we got married. And so it didn't work out the way you thought. It didn't work out. We just celebrated our 52nd wedding anniversary. 
Uh, I try to remind her that I'm working. I've got two out of three, and I'm working on number three still. So it hasn't come. I was going to say, it's not too late. No. So we, we did that. Uh, I joined the Sheriff's Department, went to college. Uh, when I first started going to college, I was anal. I wanted A's. That's all I wanted. I was a, it was a different person. And a local politician sent a letter home to my family saying congratulations and they said, congratulations, your son is on the honor roll. And first thing my mom said was, Mio, are you cheating? You know, because this was not like me. You know, I obviously, I have matured. When I looked at my transcript from high school, I thought D stood for damn good and F was fabulous. Uh, but life went on. I got on the sheriff's department. The natural progression was me to start uh, after doing my mand- mandatory jail time. I ended up going to... East LA Patrol, where I started uh, working gangs and had the first plainclothes gang unit there. The progression from gangs led me to Homicide Bureau. I wanted, I saw the way Homicide Bureau worked. The men, the women, they were professionals. They were, God, they were uh, just, when I grew up, that's what I want to do. And normally in the Sheriff's Department, we have one Homicide Bureau. It's a centralized Homicide Bureau, and it takes an average of 15 years to get there. And I was the youngest guy to get to the Bureau for the first seven years of my assignment. I was there nine and a half years. Uh, I transferred up there because of my gay expertise. Then I just started working regular murders. And once working regular murders, uh, the job, I just, it was made for me. And I learned very quickly, it's not a job, it's a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle to immerse yourself in the death of someone, and then try to get out and solve it. And that's what I did. Did that for 21 years as an investigator, was sent out on loan to uh, work for the sheriff of Los Angeles County at that time. Uh, Spent four years with him, and then I went back as a team lieutenant for the last five years of my career. I spent as a homicide lieutenant, leading 14, 14 homicide investigators. Then I retired. All was good. I was enjoying retirement. I did a short stint as the interim chief of police for a small city out here in Los Angeles County, the city of San Fernando. Uh, they got a permanent uh, chief. I then went back to doing absolutely nothing, but uh, I started doing a, I was still doing the consulting and then all of a sudden, uh, this documentary by Mr. Ru- Tiller Russell, uh, I was approached. They, the premise was that if you look at television today, there's not a lot of uh, Hispanic heroes out there. Most Hispanic characters are robbers, murderers, muggers, thugs, gangsters, dopers. And uh, they said, we're looking for a story that, as a Hispanic, it turns out to be the hero. And we like your story. We like you. And they talked to me, and I told them I really didn't care about television that much, but I just want to leave a legacy for my grandkids. We come to an agreement, shook hands, and that was it. I told Mr. Tiller I didn't want to know. He told me how he wanted the story to go. I said, I don't want to know about the story. The story is yours. I'm just the talking headpiece. Uh... He says, well, we'll show you some of the 
edits how it's coming along. I said, I don't want to see any of it. When it comes out and drops from the public, that's when I'll see it. Uh, he called me up the night that it was going to drop. He said, okay, Gil, it's coming out tonight. And all I can tell you is enjoy the ride. I had no idea what he was talking about. I said, what do you mean? He said, just enjoy the ride. Uh, I watched it with my wife. Uh, I cried through part of it. Part of it, I laughed. I, it went way better, more accurate than I ever thought, uh, more than I ever expected. And the theme of part of it was, you know, my wife knew it and my friends knew it. All I ever wanted to do with my career was make my dad proud of me. And unfortunately, he was not around when uh, I got the case. He was already deceased. And this was my shining moment, and he was he wasn't there. So I watched the documentary, and subliminally, uh, I could see that he had put in there. And I knew my dad was proud of me now. And uh, I called him up, and I said, did it. I now know my dad is proud of me. And that picture that you put in there, and he said, stop. Let me tell you something. When we were going through the edits, he says, I showed that part of you and your dad. And then I stopped everything, turned on the lights, and everybody in the room was crying. I knew we had a winner. And so, since that time, I've spoken all over the U.S. Uh, I've been, I've done Australian television, uh, Canadian TV, Dr. Oz, some, there's a female, I apologize to her, I never can remember her name. She's uh, very big, she had a talk show in the day, during the day, she's an African-American lady. And I just never remember her name because I never watched the show. Uh, we did a show for her. And uh, is that Oprah? No, not Oprah. I don't remember. Uh, if my wife were in here, she'll know who it is. Uh, but did that and do podcasts uh, for people that uh, are interested and people want to hear about things and hear one hear about the case, ask questions. How uh, the biggest one I did. Something's called Crime Con. It goes on once a year. Yeah. And I was invited to that in uh, Austin two years ago. It was a last-minute invitation because somebody dropped out. And I said, sure, I'll do it. So I went down there and I did it. And then they called me back the following year. And they said, are you going to come back? Will you do it again? And I said, well, what do you want me to talk about this time? Last time, you know, just there last year. And you said, they said, same thing you did last year. Last year, we had 1,500 attendees because of COVID. This year, we've already sold over 5,000 tickets. Wow. So, same thing. And I said, okay, I'll do it. 45 minutes. Uh, it's put on professionally. A&E sponsors it. It's a great, it's a great show. I came, uh, I got off the phone. The wife said, well, are you going to do it? I said, yeah. I said, what are you going to talk about? I said, same thing I did last year. She said, what did you talk about last year? I said, I don't know. I don't remember because I really don't prepare that much for a speech. It, it's when it's the truth and it comes from the heart, it's easy to speak. And so I went out there night before the night before I was talking, I was having dinner. 
drinking some wine, and I was there with some of the attendees, and they're saying, what are you going to talk about tomorrow? Same thing I did last year. And they said, well, what was that? I said, I don't remember. Find out tomorrow morning when I get up there. And I got up there, and when I was done, I got a uh, standing ovation. So I, I, they filmed it. I came back home, and uh, she doesn't go with me to any of these events because I need to socialize with people and, you know, what do they call it? Networking. So if I do one, I'll get invited to another one. And so, and she's an introvert. She's so shy. She doesn't want to do anything. So I came home. I said, Hey, look, they sent me a video. You want to see it? And she said, sure. So we watched the 45 minute video and which there was a standing ovation in the end. And all she could say was, well, do you have to make so much fun of me? Because I use humor as a point to get my, my point across sometimes. And she's brought my humor. And I said, dear, it's all just to get the point across. But that was, that was about it. She's happy staying home and I'm happy going on the road. I just got back. Uh, I was just in Delaware last, last month. And I was in Fresno last week and I'll be in Oklahoma here in a month or two. So, uh, yeah, crime con, I think it is in Orlando this year. Yes, sir. It is. It's in a few, in a month or two, a couple months. October. It's in October. Oh, yeah. I'm supposed to, I'm supposed to go just, but just to attend and to interview people. Yeah, it, it, it's well worth your time. It's, I, although I love CrimeCon, it's not worth it for me to pay money to fly out there, to get in a hotel, or stay there, just, just to say hello. If they want me to work, I'd be more than happy to go back to them. But if not, I can consult. All right, Kim, uh, let's, let's go back to the, um, uh, the Ramirez uh, case, if, I mean, if you don't mind. Can you, so when when did you you were partnered up with a, a a detective that had been that was kind of uh you were partnered up with a like a homicide detective that was when you is it when you first got to homicide that he was kind of a legend he'd been oh he was a legend he was a legend before i got there right it was frank salerno he was uh i you know i call him the italian stallion he's the big goomba he was a big man on campus and to this day, he's the most consummate investigator I've ever worked with. But we were paired up when I first went up there. Okay. I, there the first three years, I worked straight gang murders, which is kind of like taking sand to the beach, you know. Yeah. You get to the crime scene, and it's paramedic debris, blood spots, casings, and no witnesses that want to be cooperative. Uh, then I started working regular murders. And December of 84, he asked me, we were at a Christmas party. He asked me if I would uh, mind being his partner. And I said, no, not at all. And that would be kind of cool. So I walked back and I told my wife, I was very excited. I said, shit, Frank Salerno just asked me to be his partner. She says, so who's Frank Salerno? I said, that's Frank Salerno. Don't you know? You know, I was, I was beside myself. So uh, Frank could have had anybody he wanted and the bureau was a partner. And he chose me. And in January, he called me up on the phone. And he says, are you busy? I said, no, not at all. He said, why don't you meet me in a station? So we met. And, and he said, that night that I talked to you about being my partner, I was in my cups, you know, I was pretty well down the road. And I figured, okay, now he's letting me down easy. He was too drunk, really didn't mean it. Right. So I said, sure, I was in my cups also. And he said, well, I'm not in my cups now. He said, I want to know if you'll still be my partner. I said, certainly. 
He said, good, because I've already talked to the captain, and it's going to happen. And so that was in January. Bent is the story of John J. Boziak's phenomenal life of crime. Inked from head to toe, with an addiction to strippers and fast Cadillacs, Boziak was not your typical computer geek. He was, however, one of the most cunning scammers, counterfeiters, identity thieves, and escape artists alive, and a major thorn in the side of the U.S. Secret Service as they fought a war on cybercrime. With a savant-like ability to circumvent banking security and stay one step ahead of law enforcement, Boziak made millions of dollars in the international cyber underworld with the help of the Chinese and the Russians. Then, leaving nothing but a John Doe warrant and a cleaned-out bank account in his wake, he vanished. Boziak's stranger-than-fiction tale of ingenious scams and impossible escapes, of brazen run-ins with the law and secret desires to straighten out and settle down, makes his story a true crime con game that will keep you guessing. Bent. How a homeless teen became one of the cybercrime industry's most prolific counterfeiters. Available now on Amazon and Audible. We actually didn't hook up his partners till July because his partner got sick. The guy that was going to take his place uh, couldn't. You know, he was a tough old guy. And they, if you if you put him and Johnny Pye together, his last this guy's name was Jim Mercer. Jim Mercer's last partner died of a heart attack. And so Frank's partner at that time, Johnny Pye, was a good guy. And they said, if we split Pye and Frank up right now, and you, we put Mercer with him. He'll kill. Mer he'll kill Pye. So I said, "Kill you work with him." So I worked with Mercer for a while, and it was Mercer and I got the first one. Oh, March seventeenth, nineteen eighty-five. Dale Ogazaki and the wounding of uh, Maria Hernandez, and so I got the first one with him. I continued working with him, uh, and it wasn't until June the twenty-eighth that Frank and I got our first case together. That was Patty Elaine Higgins in the city of Arcadia. And then we started to work. And Frank was not a, he was my boss. Uh, he was the acting lieutenant for most of that time. And he actually wasn't a big proponent of one man serial killer. He, he didn't think one man was doing it, as most people didn't. And myself, I understand why they didn't, because you understand what the criminal profilers are, what they do. Yeah. Okay. Well, everything the criminal profilers do is based on criminal history. Nowhere documented in criminal history has there been anybody doing what Richard was doing or what I was alleging at that time. Which was? Which was, he was a pedophile, not only with little girls, but with little boys. He was using weapons. Serial killers normally kill in the same fashion. They stick to the same area. He used knives, guns different caliber gun, blunt force trauma, manual strangulation, ligature strangulation, different times of day. They ranged in age. He used a machete, a shod foot, you know, you name a type of how he killed and he did it. It was all different, different types of victims, different type of everything. And so it was hard convincing people that one man was doing it and it wasn't until we had enough physical evidence to show that one man was doing it, and that didn't come about until July. What was that? What was that connection? Well, we we had from early on we had a uh, a shoe print, the Avia shoe print, which was a model four forty, 
And I can tell you without equivocation today that 1,356 pair of Model 440 Vs arrived in New York from Taiwan for distribution throughout the U.S., of which six pair ended up state of California, one pair ended up in L.A. That's wow. a piece of evidence. Now, when you have, we had that shoe print, there was a lady that didn't, didn't die as a result of Richard, but her house was, she was a victim of a burglary. I want to say her name was Clara Hadsel. And he had gone into her house via a kitchen window. He did not wear a glove that day. And he put his hand on the kitchen sink and he put his foot on the kitchen sink when he stepped in. So we had a handprint and a footprint. Do you, why didn't he wear a glove? I mean, was it was he just getting, was it just arrogance or becoming brazen, more brazen? No, this was er, way early on. Okay. And if you have nothing at that time during the early 80s, uh, only uh, felony convictions have been computerized. Everything else was manual. So there was nothing on file. We didn't have DNA then. You know, this was just something. So it was just there to show that they were together. And so we, we had that. Eventually, we were able to put together the fact that some of the guns used were the same guns used on various victims. We were able to, initially, we couldn't do that because the bullets were too distorted. But once we found the guns and we found more evidence, we were able to say this bullet was used to kill that victim and this victim as well. Uh, we had surviving victims that gave physical descriptions. And the physical descriptions were relatively the same. Tall, thin, uh, light-skinned Hispanic or Caucasian, uh, dark disheveled hair, brown stained gap teeth, very pungent odor to him. Uh, so it was easy, you know, it kept going. And then when you you go on, on the morning of July, on July the 5th at the house of Whitney Bennett, on a bloody com- we found a bloody comforter with a via footprint on it. And we knew, okay, now, you know, that shoe printed showed up at the Zara house, right. showed up all the places, starting to Kind of overlapping. Exactly. Uh, um, July the 5th, that was July the 5th, July the 7th, uh, we're running on no sleep. Uh, July 7th, there was a nice pretty footprint on the front porch of Joyce Nelson's house. And so uh, not only was there a footprint on the uh, porch, but there was a footprint on the side of his on the side of her head. He stomped her head, gave her a basal fracture. So okay. now you got people working together. Once you got it's it's kinda like you're gonna put a party on and if you got five people in the in the group saying, Okay, this is what we're gonna put together this retirement party because this guy's a great guy, you have five different directions people want to go in. And until you get everybody thinking on the same page, then you move forward. Well, that's the way the case went. I understood why people did not believe me. Uh, it didn't bother me at all. I just had to keep, I had to keep working. The only thing that did bother me, uh, there were some people out there that were name calling me, and and as long as they didn't call to me to my face, you know, I, I'd hear about it, but they weren't calling me names to my face. It was all right. Just frustrating. So, um, what about he? At some point, he went and he adopted a a, a child. Yes brought her home, uh, molested her, and then dropped her back off. And then was it like in the middle of nowhere he dropped her off? Yeah. Well, it was an industrial area. He let her go in and told her to walk across the street in the gas station. 
pull her, tell the people at the gas station, call the cops, call her family. And they did. Why would why did lady, you her? The young lady was six years old. That's the lady that was in the d- documentary, Anastasia. Right. Why do you, why do you think he spared her? Were you ever able to? I don't, I don't think, you know, I get asked questions. Why do you think did he do this? Why do you think he did that? Richard asked me, why do you think I am the way I am? My simple answer is if I knew the answer to that, I'd be a doctor making a lot more money than I am, more money than I am as a cop. I have no idea why he did the things that he did. My job was to find the facts. And I owe so much of this case, not because I was that good. There was a professor at Cal State LA, Dr. Robert Morneau, retired FBI agent, taught, taught two semesters of advanced criminal investigation pertaining to sex crimes. And he taught me something that I'll never forget. And I'll get on a pulpit and talk about it. And that's understanding. If you can understand why people do what they do, then it's easier to talk to them. You don't condone their actions. You just have to understand them. So if I understand that he's doing this to little kids because he's a pedophile and that's sex to him, that turns him on, that's excitement. Okay, well, I just have to understand that. I'm not condoning it. I just understand it. When somebody kills his wife, I don't condone it. I just understand it. Uh, it it's okay. So at, at some point, he was he was driving. Was it a stolen car he was driving? He was using mostly stolen cars. He used one car that was his own, just one. Everything else was stolen. Okay, I was gonna say what wasn't it? There was the one car where he'd almost been. I guess he took off and he had touched the the roof of the car. He touched the inside. You guys wanted it printed, and that it just sat in the. And you, I remember you were you guys were. You called down there several times. You were just super frustrated because. It was frustrating. It was a stolen car. It had been stopped by a motor officer from Los Angeles Police Department. And motor officers are great cops. They have a job to do. Uh, he was more interested in writing a greenie and you know, writing a ticket for running a red light. So he walked back to his motorcycle, left Richard with his hands on the hood of the car he had been driving as Richard is there Richard could hear out of the speaker on the motorcycle tension all cars temp kidnapping just occurred suspect described as driving a and it was Richard Richard could hear it Richard drew the pentagram with his fingers he says a pentagram used to give him power so he drew the pentagram on the and then he took off running and got away did you and, and and did the officer connect that to him? Did he think, "Hey, I just had that guy"? No. No. Matter of fact, when we found out we were looking for him. We called in an extra day sick. So, but you guys figured it out. You wanted the car printed. Yes. Yes, we did. He had left behind inside the car a uh, little cheap plastic business card holder. And it had an appointment card in there for a dentist in Chinatown there in downtown L.A. And uh, he stopped the car, and it was stolen. He did that. But it was such a hot, hot day. It was hot during that summer that by the time we got to the car four days later, the print had burned right off. 
So it was, that was senseless to us. The card that he left in there, we went to the dentist. We figured it was him because the dentist described the patient's name. He, he put his name down as Richard Mena, and but he described him and it sounded just like the guy that we were looking for. So we put two guys inside the dental office, good dental office. It was working seven days a week, 12 hours a day. Uh, he was making money. So we sent two of our Asian officers in there to make a bunch of money. And Richard did, wasn't coming back. Uh, an executive from my department made the decision that we were wasting too much money and that having those guys sitting there, Richard wasn't going to come back. And we knew he was going to come back because I got a copy of the x-rays, took him to a personal friend of mine that was a dentist, and he said he's got an abscess. He's going to be in a lot of pain. He's got to come back. So didn't come back. Our, our executive told us, call LAPD, tell them to put a silent alarm in there. So you put a silent alarm. As soon as they hit it, it would go off downtown LA. They'd be on there within a couple of minutes. And so 10 o'clock that night, I'm getting phone calls from the dentist, excited. Why didn't we respond? How come nobody went down there? Richard had been down there. The alarm was not working, not working properly. So he went, our guys were gone. He went in there, got his tooth fixed. And of course the executive said, well, put the guys back in there tomorrow. <laughs> so not good. We, we had, uh, up in Northern, uh, California, we had an informant out here that told us his name was Richard Ricardo, or they called him El Despeinado, which means the uncombed one in Spanish. And we knew he had friends up in San Francisco in the San Francisco area because he had given some jewelry up there and they had pawned it. And so we knew he had a friend named Armando who was from El Paso, Texas as well. So San Francisco got a hold of Armando. They had a talk with him. He gave up the name Ramirez. They gave us the name Ramirez. We called Department of Justice. We said, okay, manually search every Richard Ramirez you have. And they broke it down to eight. Our informant told us that our Richard Ramirez had been arrested for stolen car the year before right there in L.A. And as it turns out, they found that arrest, they found that print, and they were able to match it. And not only that, we had one of the stolen cars we recovered from the Orange County case had a live print on it. They were able to match that as well. So now we had a photograph, we had a positive identification, who we were looking for, and we put it out uh, Friday, August 30th, and the next morning he was in custody. Right. There was You guys were waiting for him at the uh, bus station, right? And he, he ca- came in on an arriving bus. Yes. He thought he was leaving, but he was... Well, we knew he, he used to hang, we knew he used to hang out at that Greyhound bus depot. Oh, okay. He had a locker there. And we had no idea he'd be leaving, but that's where he kept his kill kit. Mm-hmm. He kept a duffel bag with guns and clothes and everything inside there. And uh, we figured he, we had an operation going where we had cops all around it. All around except for where the buses came in. And what we didn't know was he had been on a motorcycle on Wednesday night, got stopped by LAPD, but this was before we knew who he was. Uh before we knew who he was, and he went ahead 
and uh, got cited on that motorcycle for driving without a proper license. He drove to uh, Phoenix to go find his brother. The motorcycle broke down on on the way to Phoenix. He got a truck driver to give him a ride to Phoenix and trade for the motorcycle. He went down to Phoenix, couldn't find his brother, turned around, got on the Greyhound bus depot, came back to L.A. That's what he was doing, coming back into the depot. Right. And then he he got he ended up getting recognized. I, I'll always remember the first time I ever saw a documentary on him that the like the neighborhood that group of uh, I want to say uh, you know vigilantes. Boy, they were they were ready to lynch him when they knew who he was. You know, it it, it plays good on television, but the realities are uh, he got out of what he did was when he got out as soon as he got out of that bus, he realized, hey, there's too many people here in a bus station. This doesn't look right. So he went out the way the bus came in. And he walked down the street, walked by a liquor store, saw his picture on the front page of the morning paper. He got on the local bus, which was then uh, the RTD, Rapid Transit District. All he had to do was get eight miles. He had a brother that lived eight miles from downtown LA. He was on the bus, and while he's on the bus, one of the passengers just happened to look at the morning paper, then glance over said, holy shit, that's him. They were at a stop. He got off. He saw the guy out there, 911 from a public phone right next to the bus stop. Richard went down about another quarter mile, got off the bus. By this time, the guy that saw him originally had flagged down a gentleman that used to work for the gas company and said, follow that bus. The bad guy's on the bus. He started running around. He ran over Five lanes would be 10 lanes of the five freeway over sound barriers, over fences. He ran about two miles uh, when he tried carjacking one car, didn't get that one, tried carjacking another one. And that was a lady. She started screaming. Her husband grabbed a piece of pipe from inside the house and hit him on the head. By this time, he was tired. He was tired. So they just, the neighbors saw him. Their neighbor screaming. They saw her husband in a fight with a the guy. Then they saw the guy starting to take off. Well, he was so tired. He only got about four houses down before they just surrounded him. They didn't beat him up. They didn't. They just surrounded him. He gave up. He was exhausted. Oh, okay. And, but they didn't realize who he was. It was they, just because there was a fight. Had they known who he was, they'd have killed him. It, I mean, when you guys grabbed him, he he never de- did. He ever deny any of this, or was it just the evidence was overwhelming, or he just. He said, you got me, and this is... Well, when we first started talking to him, uh, first he was admonished of his constitutional rights, and he invoked. He didn't want to talk without an attorney being present. So he said, okay, all bets off. We'll see it. But he wanted to ask questions. He wanted to ask more. So he said, well, go ahead. You're asking a question. What do you want to know? So we sat there, and we talked with him for a while, and he enjoyed talking to me. He was not that he enjoyed it, it was more comfortable talking to me because of my culture. Right. Our culture matched. Uh, so he did. He talked to me, uh, did whatever he had to do, and he talked in the third person. The Night Stalker would have done this. The Night Stalker would have done that. He never admitted to being the Night Stalker. Later on, second visit, he said he'd cop out to everything if we dropped the kitty charges. And they said, well, that's not up to us. That's up to the district attorney's office. And then he made up his mind. He said, well, how do I get the death penalty? 
He says, because I'll cop out as soon as I find out a way to explain this to my mom. And I said, you can't cop out to the death penalty. No attorney. The only way they give you the death penalty if you cop out is if it's with a concurrence of your attorney and no attorney in his right mind is going to go say, go ahead and say, yes, it's the right thing to do. Plead guilty. So you'll have to fight it. And he said, you think I'll win? I said, no, we're going to win. Guys in white hats always win. So he, okay. I'm not, and maybe I'm, he wanted the death penalty. He yeah. No, he did. So he said, okay. Whether that was bravado, he, he also said he was tired of running. He knew he was going to get caught. He was tired. So what was the, you know, ultimate resolution? I mean, there wasn't, there wasn't a trial. Well, no, there was a trial. Was there a trial? He found guilty on every, every count that we alleged he found guilty. Of. So I have a question. Why, why would he go to trial? Why not? Because there's a chance that we may have made a legal mistake as, as in the beginning i told you he invoked his he invoked his rights yet we talked to him one of the judges said and that judge is totally wrong uh at the preliminary hearing said it was the worst violation of miranda he had ever seen after a suspect invoked his constitutional rights we continued talking to him well what he didn't realize and he spoke out of term was we could not use anything richard told us in the case in chief, nor did we, because everything he told us in the, initially we already knew, but we couldn't use it anyway, unless if Richard took the stand in his own defense, then we could use it in rebuttal. Right. That's the only way we could use it. Well, this judge said there was a worst case of violation, Miranda, worst case of judging I've ever seen. He was in violation. He's out of order. I, so, I mean, I, I just, I can't imagine going to trial thinking after, you know, all the various crime scenes, like n no one technicality is going to destroy that case with such, you know. Well, what you have is, because it happened in the very beginning, there's, uh, in criminal law, there's a doctrine that they teach in law schools called fruits of the poison tree. Right. So, any fruit that comes off that tree, if it's poison, Everything after that is no good. So if they had to shut down that that beginning, you know, they, they could have said a lot of things. Who knows? Didn't happen. Right. I, I, I was glad it happened. I was, I was glad it came out the way it did. And uh, I know I got home that night. Uh, my wife had never seen me cry before. I said nothing. I got in bed, crawled under the blankets, and I cried like a baby. And she just put her arm around me and said, it's okay. Your dad was with you. She knew why I was crying. So it was all over with. Well, well um, ultimately, what was his sentence? He's not kidding. He, he was given, I don't know how many counts, how many counts of death he was given. I think he was given about, geez, 14, 15 counts of death plus about 300 years. You know, but he, he's dead now. He died September 13th, June 7th, uh, 2013. Uh, was he executed or he died of natural no, of natural I'm, Yeah, he had cancer and hepatitis. Um, I guess I, I can't 
were there, are there any other uh, cases that you worked on that, I mean, I'm, I'm sure this is obviously, this is the most, you know, I don't know. Uh, I don't know if, uh, do you say notorious or celebrated or? Yeah, this is the highest profile. Highest pro, thank you. But, uh, yeah, worked on hundreds of murders over there right. with all the years that I spent there. But the realities are it's different between us, when I say us, homicide investigators, and you, the press, or civilians out there that aren't in law enforcement. A murder is just another murder to us. None is more important than the other. It could be a transient. It could be rich old lady. It doesn't matter. Nobody has a right to take anybody else's death. You put every ounce of work that you can in every case you get to try and solve. They're all important to us. Right. And and now you're you retire. When did you retire? I retired officially November thirtieth, two thousand and nine. Okay, and what are you what are you doing now? Yeah, I'm doing a lot of public speaking and just trying to stay ahead of the health game. You know, the older you get, you run into these speed bumps. I've hit a few speed bumps that they get it well, then get back up and start going again. So it's just this getting old it ain't for sissies. I'll tell you. I, I know my mom used to say that all the time. Trying uh, kids now. Uh, I, I, uh, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm, listen, I'm, I'm 53. I start the day off with three ibuprofen. (laughs) And if I don't take them, I can tell throughout the day. I'm like, oh, you know, and I'm in fairly good shape, but you know, there's always some, I twist sideways or something. Something's always aching or hurting. I'm the bionic, I'm the bionic man. I've had both knees replaced. They took out my kidney. I had cancer in my kidney about 12 years ago. They were took my kidney out. I got something, so I don't have to take blood thinners on the left. Uh, what do they call on the, on the, uh, I even forget what they call it. They advertise them on TV. Now, uh, something you put in, in your, an appendage in your heart, you know, make sure you don't get blood clots. Like a stent. A watchman. Oh, so watch. Yeah, I got a watchman in there, and now they're talking about putting something in my wrist. I go see some electrophysiologist electrophysicist physician that wants to put something in my wrist that'll go up my arm that'll monitor my heart because I have AFib, I have a leaky valve on the left side of my heart. You know, I'm a walking... (laughs) I just appreciate every day I have. Well, I mean, you've... you've, I mean, you you have to... You have to look back and say, you know, you've had a a hell of a career. You know? You know, things have gone pretty, pretty well. I'm, I'm assuming, I mean, for someone who's going to go into that line of work, I mean, there's going to be a lot of disappointment. You've got to, you know, there's no, you can't solve every case. You see a lot of horrible, horrendous things, I'm sure. So, but for what, for, for the, for the career path you chose, you know, you found a pretty good one. I'm a happy camper. I can't, I can't complain. I, I was, I was brought to tears the other day I was at a funeral and I met a man that brought tears to my eyes. There's a movie starring Mel Gibson. Uh, we were soldiers. Yeah. And it's a very, very touching movie. Um, I flew over there, uh, and a buddy of mine who was a technical advisor called me and said, you got to take somebody you love to go see this movie. 
And so I took my wife. My wife begged me for forgiveness for having broken up the movie over there. Um, my kids watched the movie on their own, and they came home, and they were crying. They couldn't believe it. Well, I met the man on the other day. He's still alive. Looks great. He was the uh, radio operator for Colonel Al Morrill in the movie. He was Mel Gibson's radio operator, but only in real life. Right. So he had to live through all that, see all that. And I just could not believe. I was I was awestruck. I was so honored just to see because I know what combat's like, but to see what he went through and to see what they went through and everything. It was very, very touching for me. I still have a heart. Well, listen, I, I don't I don't want to keep you any longer. I I I really appreciate you doing this interview. Um, you know, I was fascinated by the story and uh, I enjoyed, you know, you talking to me. Well, it was my pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. Hey, this is Matt Cox. I really appreciate you guys watching. Do me a favor. If you like the video, hit the subscribe button, hit the bell so you get notified of videos just like this. Uh, leave me a, a comment and share the video. And thanks a lot. I really do appreciate it. See you guys.